So we are getting close to wrapping up this series in the Gospel of Luke that has been called the Upside Down Kingdom. And from the beginning, whenever I was planning out this series, I try to plan sort of a year in advance for the kinds of things that I'm going to be talking about. I don't have them all written out a year in advance, but generally the themes. And as I was planning the Gospel of Luke, I was trying to think about stories that are unique to the Gospel of Luke and maybe prioritizing those above some that might be covered in a different gospel. And there was one parable that is unique to the Gospel of Luke that I intentionally kept saying, no, 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 I am not going to do that one. And I made the plans that I wasn't. But some things happened where the weeks shifted around and I had an opening right after the prodigal son. And all signs were pointing to me doing this parable. So here we are. This is the parable of the unjust steward, or the parable of the dishonest manager, depending on how you've heard it called. And while I was planning my Luke series, I was like, this one, uh-uh, this is very confusing. <laughs> this one, I don't really know what to do with. If the prodigal son is everyone's favorite parable, this is maybe everyone's least favorite parable, or at least the least known parable, because we don't really know what to do with it. You don't see Hobby Lobby creating beautiful home decor with the words of this parable on them. <laughs> and I've heard from a couple professors that parables are intended to reveal and conceal. They're supposed to reveal a really beautiful kingdom truth. But at the same time, sometimes it's concealed meaning. If you have ears to hear, let them hear, right? That sort of concept. Well, if there's a spectrum of reveal and conceal, this one is more on the conceal side. And if you're not very familiar with it, you will see why very shortly. But even though this parable is confusing, I do believe, after spending a lot of time in study with this this past week, that there is something really, really important and powerful for us to take from this parable. So if you would, turn with me to Luke chapter 16, beginning in verse 1. And remember... This is fresh off the story of the prodigal son. So this is the same crowd that Jesus is talking to. So in that situation, he's talking to tax collectors and sinners, an increasing crowd of them. Disciples are also there. The Pharisees are also there. And so now he turns specifically to his disciples to tell this parable. There was a rich man whose manager was accused of wasting his possessions. So he called him in and asked him, what is this I hear about you? Give an account of your management because you cannot be manager any longer. In other words, you're fired. So the rich man sees this manager as being lazy, wasting his possessions, and does not want him at all anymore. And the manager is like, okay, this is not good for me. So in verse 3, he says, what shall I do now? My master is taking away my job. I'm not strong enough to dig and I'm ashamed to beg. So he's done, he doesn't want to be a blue-collar worker, and he doesn't want to be someone sitting on the side of the road asking for money. So he puts it on his thinking cap, thinks about it for a second, and comes up with a plan. I know what I'll do so that when I lose my job here, people will welcome me into their houses. So you can kind of see a little bit behind the curtain of what he's thinking. I'm going to try to build some relationships so I will be taken care of when I'm done here. So you see his final efforts in being a manager of his master's money right here in verse 5. So he called in one of his master's debtors. He asked the first, how much do you owe my master? 900 gallons of olive oil, he replied. 
which if you do not happen to have your handy dandy olive oil calculator with you, that is roughly the equivalent of three years salary. That's a pretty sizable debt, right? And then the manager told him, take your bill, sit down quickly, showing that he's kind of moving with haste on this, maybe because he's up to no good, and make it 450. So he gives him that swift 50% discount. And could you imagine being the debtor here for a second? You have to pay back three years salary, basically, to this person, and someone comes in and cuts that in half. You would be pretty favorable towards the person that gave you 50% off, right? Or in other words, you might feel like you owe that person a favor in the future, which is exactly what the manager is banking on whenever that comes. Because whenever he is going to be by himself, without a job, he wants to go back to this guy probably and be like, hey, remember that one time I gave you a 50% discount? You wanna help me out now? He's, he's trying to make friendships and connections to secure his future. In verse seven, he does the same thing with the second debtor. How much do you owe? A thousand bushels of wheat, he replied. And again, if you don't have your ancient times wheat calculators with you today, that is roughly an eight to 10 year salary. So this is a huge debt that this person owes. And he, and he told him, take your bill and make it 800. So you know what's really fascinating about the first person getting 50% off and the second person getting 20% off? That's a real question I'm asking. Do you know? Because I have no idea. <laughs> no clue as to why that is. Maybe the second guy that only got 20% off was an Alabama fan. I don't know. Um, just kidding, I, I'm in Ball's country, you know, I gotta, gotta play the room. God loves Alabama fans too, I think. Um, I did read that olive oil was more precious, so maybe 50% off, that's more of a stick it to the master sort of thing, I don't know. We're not gonna look into it, we're gonna go on in verse eight. This is the part where scholars really ask some questions. The master, commended the dishonest manager because he had acted shrewdly. For the people of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind than are the people of the light. What do you do with this? This is really, really interesting. The commendation is for a dishonest and undercutting person. How do we make sense of this? And how, how does this work if God is the master in this story? Is God the master in this story? I mean, it doesn't seem like it would be that far of a leap, right? Because the parable right before it is the parable of the prodigal son, and it's very clear that the father in that story is representing God. So it's not a huge leap to think that the same word that's used for Lord in Greek, master, is that referring to God as well? And what exactly do we mean by shrewd? We don't really go around using the word shrewd a bunch. How do we make sense of this story? So I've read a bunch of <laughs> interpretations this week. I think Randy Harris, who's a professor at ACU, he said, as you walk along in your journey, there's gonna come points where the parables of Jesus just sort of like sink in with you. And I'm like, I think I might need to start running with Jesus because this one, this one's really hard. <laughs> this one hasn't fully just sunk in, sunk in, that's not a word. Sink, sunk, sink? I don't know. Whatever, grammar people you know. But <laughs> one interpretation I read that is kind of interesting is the master was maybe charging interest 
on these debtors. And if you're not familiar with Judaism, then that is not something you're supposed to do. It's forbidden to charge interest for somebody else. So what the manager was doing was cutting off the interest for these debtors, and that's why the master commended him, because if the master said, hey, he didn't give me all the money that I was owed, then he would have to own up to his own shady dealings. That's a fun interpretation. I don't think it's right. But the interpretation that makes the most sense to me is that the master in the story is not God. And there are some reasons as to why I think that. Uh, the master has some shadiness about him in this story. And also, um, seeing him commend a dishonest person is interesting. But what I believe is happening here is Jesus is using a worldly example that would have really made sense to his listeners to commend specifically the shrewdness of this individual, not endorsing the dishonesty. And I think that's very clear based upon what's coming up later in this passage. But the fact that he acted really quickly and cleverly to secure a future for himself, that is the thing that Jesus is sort of pulling out that he's wanting to use as a teaching point. And this Greek word for shrewd, it can mean wise, but normally in the New Testament, whenever that word, the way, the way that we would understand wise, whenever that's used in the New Testament, that word's normally Sophia. This is meaning more of an astute, quick, sharp and clever judgment or decision. And normally this word has a little bit of self-interest baked into it as well. So is Jesus saying that we should be clever and self-interested? <laughs> I don't think so. I think it's kind of similar to what Jesus is saying in Matthew 10, whenever he says that we should be shrewd as serpents and innocent as doves. He holds those two things together. So I don't think he's thinking we all need to be selfish, self-interested, because the innocence part of this is in this equation, I think. So this shrewdness is not that Jesus is wanting us to be selfish, but to be quick and clever for something specific. And what exactly is that? He's wanting us to be clever and maybe exercise unconventional thinking, but instead of it being about securing our financial futures, instead of it being about securing as much comfort as we can in this life, it's more specifically dealing with our eternal futures. And that's very clear, I think, in verse 9. I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves, so that when it is gone, you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. So in the same way that the manager was clever with his money to secure friendships and secure a future for himself, Jesus is saying that he is wanting us to be shrewd whenever it comes to having more of an eternal perspective. And what that means for us is not using money necessarily to secure a more comfortable life or a better financial future, because that is not as shrewd if you have an eternal perspective as being incredibly generous with your money. We need to be shrewd stewards of our lives for the sake of the kingdom of God. And really, I believe that this whole parable is about shrewd stewardship. And that's a little bit of a tongue twister. So if you say that five times fast, good job. And I think in, in verse 10, we really see some of the heart behind this parable. Whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much. And whoever is dishonest with very little will also be dishonest with much. So if you have not been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, who will trust you with true riches? And if you have not been trustworthy with someone's property, who will give you property of your own? I really think this is a call for us to be faithful, to be a good steward in every area of our lives. 
I think the most clear example we see in this is with our finances, because that's what this is primarily talking about. We need to be generous people. And I know some of us, we may feel like we don't have space to be generous in our lives right now. But the truth is, normally what we mean by that is I can't be generous and keep living the way I want to live. I can't keep buying the new cars. I can't keep eating out at all the restaurants I want to eat out at. I can't keep traveling all the time. And I'm not, I'm not saying that in a judgmental way. I'm not saying that pointing fingers. This is also for me. I need to be more generous. I, I pray that Jesus removes any greed in my heart that I can fully be a generous person. One of my professors and mentors, Monty Cox, uh, I love this guy. He's, he's one of the most amazing people that I've met in my life. Big mentor of mine. He talks about whenever he was in Kenya as a missionary. He would get called out a little bit by his Kenyan brothers and sisters because he would use a lot of possessive language for his possessions. He would say things like, yeah, I'm going to go get my Bible from my house and I will pick you up in my car. And his Kenyan friends would say, no, you're going to pick up the Bible from the house and you will pick us up in the car. Monty didn't really like that at first. He's like, the car? No, this is my car. But his Kenyan friends were pointing out to him how much we, primarily as Americans, love private ownership. How much we're actually attached to our possessions, and you can even hear it in our language. We don't see our possessions as gifts from God that we can be a good steward of, that we can be generous with. And moving away from money, we do need to be good stewards in all the little things. Whenever I was at Lipscomb last year, I had several conversations with students they would ask a question kind of like, why do I have to do this? Why are grades important? Why do I have to be at school? And I gave, there were several answers I could give them, but one of them I gave with some frequency was, well, there's going to come a point whenever you have an employer over you or somebody over you, they're going to look and say, oh, you were responsible with this smaller stuff. Therefore, I feel like I can trust you to be responsible for some of the more important stuff. Because the little things matter. I know while I was in college, I talked with peers who had mentioned something that would be like a really big red flag for me in a relationship that they had with a significant other. Like, for example, there was somebody that talked about how there was their significant other that had this big blow up over something really, really small. And then at the end of it, what was said was, yeah, but that's not really who this person is. If someone's going to blow up for something that small, how can you trust in the future, whenever life gets really stressful, that they're not going to react that same way again? The little things matter. And I know some may doubt the significance of spiritual disciplines in their lives right now. Uh, it doesn't really connect with me to read my Bible. Prayer is kind of hard for me. I don't want to do that. It's just not super important for me. Okay. Well, what happens whenever life starts going off the rails? If we haven't been building our foundation on Jesus, our lives are going to crumble. Being faithful in the little things helps us be faithful in the big things. On January 2nd of this year, there was an NFL game between the Bills and the Bengals, and I was watching that one live, and there was a receiver for the Cincinnati Bengals that lowered his shoulder into a defensive back for the Bills named DeMar Hamlin, 
and it caused him to go into cardiac arrest. And the whole world was kind of, not the whole world, the people who watched football were shook by this situation. It was really freaky seeing tons of players huddled around, seeing an ambulance on the field, and seeing grown men weep about what was happening. And you hear the word CPR has been administered. You know that's not good. And the world was kind of in the dark about the state of this person for a few days. But now we know that the training staff of the Bills, they were on it. From the moment it happened, they moved swiftly. They were prepared. There was a guy named Denny Kellington. He was the one who was doing CPR on DeMar for over nine minutes. And what I see in this situation is this was a group of people. This was a person who was really faithful in the small things. He didn't just kind of take a test for CPR and pass it and be like, yeah, I'm, I'm only doing this to get the grade. I'm only doing this to pass. He was faithful in that small stuff. He was faithful in his studies. He was faithful in his practice, and that prepared him for whenever the crisis came. And I would imagine other trainers or other staffs that have not been as faithful in the small things and the small details, they may not have had the same success in this situation. We need to be faithful in the little things so that whenever the crisis comes, whenever challenges emerge, we can be shrewd stewards for the kingdom of God. And truthfully, church, I really think crises, challenges are emerging and are likely coming. There was a study done on Churches of Christ in 2021 that estimated that 10,000 of the 12,000 congregations today will shut down in the next 30 years by 2050. In that same 30-year time frame, it's estimated that attendance will fall from 1.1 million to 250,000. Those are pretty alarming numbers. And if the trends hold up, we've kind of been a few decades behind what's been happening in Europe, and we're moving more and more, inevitably, towards a post-Christian culture in this country. And to be clear, I'm not saying Christianity is going away. What I'm saying is I think cultural Christianity is going away. It's very possible that in the years to come, we're going to be faced with the decision, kind of like what we read in the parable of the sower with the rocky soil. Whenever trials and temptations come, people of that soil kind of fall away. We're going to be faced with the decision, am I going to go with what the world's going with, or do I really have a rugged commitment to Jesus over everything? In the next few decades, the days of consumerism in churches are going to go away, saying, oh, I really like the worship in this place, but the preacher, eh, not that great. I don't know, the coffee in the front lobby at this place was way better than the other place. Maybe we should go here. I think those days are going to be a relic. Because people are going to have to stop dividing over small and petty matters. It's not going to matter what songbook you're using or the color of the carpet or what your worship style is. What's going to matter is are you with Jesus? But though much looks grim, the numbers aren't all bad. First of all, even though there may be more of a trend in the United States that it's moving more towards a post-Christian world, just because something bad is going on here doesn't mean it is in the rest of the world. The global church is thriving, is alive and well. Christianity is growing worldwide at a rate of 1.17%. And you may not be like, wow, 1.17, that's not very much. It's still growth. 
And in Africa, it's more than double that. It is exploding in Africa. There's actually African missionaries that are coming to the United States. And the growth rate in Asia is significantly higher. The church is alive and well. God is moving. All is well. And even in the United States, even though I read some alarming numbers, there's some good too. Barna released some research recently that showed more millennials and Gen X, they are coming back to church than when they were before COVID. And it's like an 11% increase or something like that. There's, there's some positive things. I hope that trend continues, but it may not. Why am I sharing this with you? Though the trends, particularly of Churches of Christ, is very freaky, that doesn't have to be true of this church. We can continue to be an outpost of heaven regardless of what is happening in the world around us. But we need to realize that the things that are ahead of us are not like what was behind us. If we try to reach people in the community using the methods that worked in 1950 and 1970 and 2000, even 2020, we may not be very effective. Because in many ways as a world, we are going through uncharted territory. The technological revolution in this world has changed the game. And we as a church need to be shrewd stewards to navigate this new terrain that is ahead of us. We need to be faithful in the little things right now. Being clever in how we can be good stewards of our gifting, how we can be good stewards of our possessions, of our time. Because I imagine the day is coming whenever we will need to be. And I don't say this to panic anybody, right? Because as Christians, we have the most optimistic worldview imaginable. We know that God is one who is going to make all things right. And honestly, the church thrives in times of hardship historically. So I'm kind of like, bring it on. Come what may. But we need to be shrewd. And this is why in this next year, we're going to be working on creating a vision, having some direction, emphasizing discipleship, thinking shrewdly of how we as a church can use our gifting, our placement smack dab in the middle of Franklin, our possessions, how we can use our time, our relationships, all for the glory of God. And if we as a church lean into the power of the Holy Spirit, we can navigate whatever uncharted territory is ahead of us. But we got to check our hearts first. We need to make sure that we are being faithful in the small things. Quoting my professor, Monty, again, we need to ask, is my Christianity just paint slapped on the surface or stain that soaks the wood all the way through? And really ask that question. Because a lot of times it can feel like it's just the surface. But is Jesus truly the Lord of every aspect of our lives? We need to be making sure that we are faithful in the small things because Jesus reminds us in verse 13, no one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. And that might make some of you feel uncomfortable. It makes me uncomfortable, and I think it should. It definitely made the Pharisees uncomfortable. We see the next verse here, verse 14. The Pharisees, who loved money, heard all of this and were sneering at Jesus. We need to bring that word back, sneering. The idea is scoffing at someone with your nose turned up at them. He said to them, you are the ones who justify yourselves in the eyes of others, 
but God knows your hearts. What people value highly is detestable in God's sight. Woo! Jesus doesn't really pull punches much, does he? In other words, the normal things that we value, the things that we emphasize, the things that we put on a pedestal above God, God sees those things as detestable. We cannot serve two masters, church. Jesus gives us no room to even flirt with another thing we value over him. Saying that you're going to hate the one and love the other. It's kind of similar to that teaching that we talked about several weeks ago, how Jesus said, unless you hate your father and mother, you can't be my disciple. Again, he's not saying you have to hate your family. He's saying you have to choose me over everything. It's not good enough for us to take something and, and kind of wrestle with it and be like, yeah, I like this and Jesus. No, it is Jesus over everything. We cannot choose money over Jesus. We can't choose comfort over Jesus. We can't choose country over Jesus. We can't choose self over Jesus. We can't even choose family over Jesus because we have one master. So may we be shrewd managers of what the master has given us, but minus the dishonesty. So let's ask the question of ourselves. How can we be shrewd stewards for the kingdom of God? How can I be shrewd with my house? How can I be more hospitable and bring people in? How can I be shrewd with my car? Can I help people get from point A to point B? How can I be shrewd with my hobbies? How can I bring people into the things that I love? With our connections, with our time, our possessions, with our church family, how can we be shrewd stewards? And being shrewd managers, it means being faithful in the little things. So let's ask, is Jesus the master of the little things in my life? And a follow-up to that is, isn't Jesus worthy to be the master of the little things in my life? Because if I had to trade my life for the experience of the love and the intimacy with God, I would trade that in a second. Because there is nothing more important than that. And though the burden of life, the burden of me reading these statistics, it might feel heavy, Jesus' burden is light. And even if the world around me is going to neglect me, the joy that I have from walking with Jesus, it doesn't matter what people are going to say about me. It doesn't matter what people think. Because I'm experiencing true joy walking with Jesus, and I get the privilege to partner with God in ushering the kingdom of heaven down here to earth. That is worth whatever the cost. So church, may we be faithful in the little things. May we be clever and shrewd to navigate the new territory that is before us. Because if we do this, church, 4th Avenue will continue to be a beacon of hope, an outpost of heaven for years and years and years and years to come. I want to invite anybody this morning, if you have any prayer requests, if you have anything going on in your world, if you're wanting to get plugged in, if you want to be a better steward of what you have, anything that you would want prayers for, any celebrations in your life, I'm going to encourage our shepherds to go ahead and go around the room, and they would love to pray with you, um, any of our prayer team as well. And if there's anything going on in your life, please don't hesitate. We believe in the power of prayer here. We believe that amazing transformation can come when people of God get together and pray together. So don't be afraid to 
bring up, bring to light the thing that has been in the darkness in your life. And one final thing, after the song today, we're going to have a quick announcement from the shepherds. Uh, so hang tight a little bit, and then we'll send you on your way. Lord, we thank you so much for being a God that is so for us. A God that's with us in the fire and the flood. Help us to be a good steward. Help us to see the things that you have given us as a gift, as something that we don't own, but as something that we are to use for your glory. Help us to be shrewd. Help us to be clever. Help us to lean on the Holy Spirit as we navigate the things that are ahead of us. And I pray, I pray blessing and favor over this church that we can be faithful to you in the little things so that when the big things do come, we will be ready for them. We thank you for your grace. We thank you for your mercy and your love that makes everything else feel so small in comparison. Help us to be like you. Help this church to look like Jesus and act like Jesus. Help our, our Christianity, our faith, to be the stain that soaks deep into us in every part of us, not just something we're playing pretend about. We pray all this in Jesus' holy name. Amen.